kids are dismissed to head on down. Join Molly there in the back. Every once in a while, um, when we're worshiping, I really catch the uh, the congregation really singing. That this last song was was really powerful. Um, I don't know if you heard it. I, it's hard uh, when I'm up front to know kind of how it sounds w- when you're in the middle or the back, but it just sounded like a chorus of our church just really praising God. It was awesome. Amen. A um, month ago, I was in Israel and uh, came back and I, I preached a message um, about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. And um, part of the, uh, the message was being impacted by what I had experienced in Israel, which is that um, in Israel, among you know a very large Jewish population, and especially in Jerusalem, where uh, the whole city basically is very observant, um, there's a couple of things that the Jewish people do as part of their their identity in 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 terms of like really you know being Jewish and really trying to observe the law. Um, one is the Sabbath, you know, how they observe the Sabbath and how they uh, go through really just a lot of, of legalistic practices. You know, they, they uh, have so many things that are kind of just so outside of our normal experience. They, um, they did, the whole city just shuts down for 24 hours, and, and it's so obvious, like, how... Uh, the entire place is just really um, pausing, you know. There's no work being, no stores are open. There's, there's just no cars hardly on, on the streets. People are, are, if they're going anywhere, they're walking, and they're not walking very far. It's just, it's, everybody's just kind of staying home. Um, and then the other thing that they do is that they observe uh, kosher um, food laws, you know. They, they really try to practice that type of observance. You know, there's a, there's a legalism about what they can and can't eat, how they can prepare food, what they have to do to make sure that it's, it's um, something they can ingest. They can't have cheese or any kind of dairy product with any kind of a meat product because there's this one little weird saying in Scripture that they, this is how they've interpreted it, but you must not... Um, cook a goat uh, in its mother's milk, okay? And they interpret that to me, and you cannot take any chances that you will ingest a animal with the milk of its mother. So there's no crossover between uh, dairy products and meat products. Um, and, you know, we kind of interpret that as a little bit strange. Like, I don't know about you, but to me, that just seems like an odd way to interpret that. Um, but there are just so many things like that um, going on that, that just become more and more, you know, aware, we become more aware of uh, when you live in it and you see it and you're like, oh, this is what they're doing and how they're doing it. And so I came back from Israel and I uh, talked a little bit about that with the, uh, the message about uh, the Sabbath. And um, one of the things that I was coming away from from the scripture with was this idea that Jesus has clearly said that he is Lord of the Sabbath, okay? And that 
Uh, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he performed all these miracles to show uh, what his standard or requirement was for the Sabbath. And I missed some things, okay? And this is always a strange irony, okay, in preaching. You know, I know I drone on and on for seems like an eternity, um, and yet, and, and I sometimes I feel like that. Like I'm like, I'm still preaching. What is going on? Why? Um, but other time, but the issue is that I'm always feeling, and I have always felt like uh, every sermon is unfinished. There's there's so much more to talk about than what I could ever deal with in any given sermon, okay? No matter how long the sermon is, I can't fully address everything that's going on in any particular passage. It's just, it's too full of, of meaning and information and, and practical application and everything else. Um, and so the issue with the Sabbath was that as I kind of explored that issue, I, I missed something um, and I felt like there's just a real need to deal with the reality, okay, the issue that Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus, Jesus fulfills the law in such a way that um, God has allowed for us Christian people to be released from the burden of legalism. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> but... He has still um, a desire to inform us, teach us, and instruct us and help us in the spirit of the law. Okay, he's, Jesus fulfilled the law, but he did not abandon God's standard. And this is something that in Christianity we've always struggled with from day one. We've always had this, this tension um, maybe it's not really a disagreement, but it's maybe a misunderstanding that uh, what does it mean for Jesus to have fulfilled the law and yet God still requires or he still has a standard of morality or he still wants us to follow him in obedience? What, is, what does that mean? That, that we have this, this freedom, but it's not a freedom just to sin and do whatever we want. We still have this sense of obligation to try to honor God with our lives. Would you agree? And, and trying to figure that out, it, it can be hard. The whole New Testament um, deals with that over and over and over and over. And yet, even though it clearly deals with it, here we are 2,000 years later, still struggling. I, here's the, the issue that we constantly run into with people is that because of grace... Uh, we, we take for granted that God would um, have any standard for how we live our lives. And I remember so clearly when I was a youth pastor a long time ago, um, <laughs> there was a student in, in my ministry who had decided that he was going to, and, and this, I'm going to get myself in trouble. He decided that he was going to join the Catholic Church because, and he told me this, these were his words, and this is his misunderstanding too, okay, I'm not saying this is correct, 
But he said that he can go and he can party, he can drink, he can do whatever he wants, and then he'll just go to confession and have all his sins, you know, forgiven and absolved, and then he could go back and do whatever he wants. Like, that was his understanding of what it meant to be Catholic. Now, any former Catholics or current Catholics in the, in the room who are listening, I don't believe that's what the Catholic Church teaches, okay? Uh, but that's what he picked up. I can just go to confession, and all that will be forgiven, and I, don't, and I can just live however I want. And so he didn't want to go to a Baptist church or a Baptist ministry because we, we tend to believe and teach that your Christian life needs to be lived out every day. And yet, and one, at some point I'm going to get into the message, but as Baptists, okay, and Of, of grace and forgiveness that this young man was professing uh, to believe in over here in this other tradition. It's the same thing. I mean, and our issue may be not a confessional booth, maybe it's the altar. Well, I, I've been bad this week, I'll just go to the altar. And that becomes our religious legalism. Our, our practice. We're just going to do what we want, but then we're going to find this little spot where we can Picking it up in verse 17. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. We, we stand... period on top of an eye. I mean, it's every single stroke of the pen. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments,
never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Father, we, uh, Lord, we approach you with great confidence because of Jesus. Thank you that we can. Thank you that we can come into your presence knowing that you receive us, knowing that you long and love to, to hear us pour out our, our pleas, our requests, our worship, um, our questions, whatever they may be. Lord, we come knowing that because of Jesus, the, the veil was torn. into the hearts of everybody who's listening, God, that uh, there would be a receptivity, Lord, not to what I'm saying, but to what your word is clearly proclaiming. God, would you, would you be the teacher, please?
leave uh, Egypt and they cross eventually the Jordan River and they enter into the promised land. And the New Testament says that they were baptized into Moses and they're baptized through the Jordan through water. And Jesus was baptized where? At the Jordan. And he received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And his father said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. On and on and on. There are so many connections that are there that it, it, everything that Jesus does and says, you could connect it back to a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Let me be a little bit more um, general. Okay, Jesus fulfills what he says, the law and the prophets. Um, the, the Old Testament was split up into basically three sections. Uh, the law, which is the laws of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, or also called the Torah or the Pentateuch, is also split up into the prophets. And we think of the prophets as Isaiah and Elijah, or Ezekiel and Daniel and, and Malachi and all those prophets. We think of those as the prophets, and they are. Uh, but the Old Testament uh, in the Jewish mind was actually, the prophets were all the history. So uh, Joshua and Judges and 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, those were all uh, part of the prophets. And then, so you had the law, the prophets, and then you had the third, which is the writings. And the writings are the wisdom literature. Jesus fulfills all of those. He fulfills the law by being the law and then by being perfect under the law. The, the law had 613 uh, specific requirements. Jesus met every one of those perfectly his entire life. And one of the questions that we have is, is how did, he, how did he do that? Like, doesn't that seem impossible to you, to me? Like, that he never broke a single law his entire life? How did he do that? And you would answer that he was what? He was perfect. Well, if he's a perfect person, then there's no problem. He's just going to do all these things. But here's the thing, is that the Word of God tells us that he is in very nature God. In very nature God. Now, we're Christian people. We don't doubt that. We don't question that. He, he was born of a virgin. His, uh, his birth is miraculous. He is uh, specifically the uh, only begotten Son of God. And so he has a different nature than you and I have. He is in very nature of God. It says over and over that he is the incarnation of the Word. He is the Word made flesh. It says that he uh, who uh, knew no sin became sin. It says that um, he is the image of the invisible God. I mean, it just constantly is kind of drawing us back to the reality that he is in very nature something different than we are. He's human, but he's also fully God. Now, as we don't question that or we don't have a big dilemma here, there's another issue, though, which is that, and I've said this before, but I think I've maybe only mentioned it one time, that because of his nature, being God, he did not struggle with obedience like you and I do. Anybody struggle with obedience? How about knowledge? Like even knowing what you're supposed to do or understanding how that applies to your life or how that works out or the ability or the strength or the motivation to do it every day uh, constantly without fail. Okay. He did not struggle with knowing what the Word says because He was the Word made flesh. He didn't struggle with understanding it because He was the Word and, and it was His nature. 
He didn't, under, uh, he didn't struggle with knowing what his father's will was. He heard perfectly from his father constantly. Because of these things, it was his nature, and here's what I'm saying, it was his nature to do what was right. That was his nature. And yet, and I, <laughs> I just wonder if, if somebody at this point would bring up Hebrews. Remember what Hebrews says? He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. You remember that? And here's what I believe is going on here. He is not tempted internally like you and I are. I'm, I'm tempted because I'm a sinful creature. And you're tempted because you're a sinful creature. You have sinful desires internally that you want to do that are opposed to God's will. He didn't have that. But he did still have external temptations. He had a world around him that was evil. He had disciples that were off track. He had a, an enemy, Satan, who was tempting him. He had all these external temptations that he still had to face and deal with and overcome. Just like Adam and Eve, okay, they did not have a sinful nature, and they didn't have a sinful world. All they had was one enemy, and they still fell to that temptation. So Jesus has a perfect nature, he has no desire to sin, and he doesn't sin. He lives it out perfectly. He does exactly what he's supposed to do under the law to fulfill the law. And to, for me, that would be enough. Like I'll, if, if that were all that he did, I would say, perfect, that's enough. But that's not all that he did. He fulfills the prophecy too. So throughout the Old Testament, you have, starting in Genesis chapter 3, that God says that the one who's going to rescue the world from sin is going to be born of the woman's seed. So he's specifically saying that it's going to come from the woman, but it also means that he's going to be human. Okay, he's, he's saying that this Messiah, the Savior, is going to be a human being. He's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to win over um, for God the people who will trust in him. Amen? So there's a prophecy here that he's going to be human, he's going to come from woman, so he's going to be born of a virgin, he's going to be uh, from the, the lineage of Abraham, he's going, to be an, he's going to be Jewish, he's going to be an Israelite, he's going to be of the tribe of Judah, he's going to be from the family line of David, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to perform signs and wonders, he's going to uh, be beaten and stricken and smited. And he's going to be a man of sorrows, according to Isaiah 53. He's going to die, but he's not going to see decay. So something weird's going on here. He's going to be punished for our sake, but yet he's going to live forever, and he's going to be king and ruler of all. All these prophecies that are laid out clearly throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is going to fulfill each and every one of them by who he is and what he does. So he fulfills not only the requirements under the law, he fulfills all the requirements of the Messiah. And here's the reality here. No one else in history has ever qualified other than Jesus for that role. No one. No one has fulfilled those things the way that Jesus did. So that's two. Um, the third one is the writings. So what are the writings? The writings are wisdom. 
And remember last week what I was saying about um, when Jesus taught the parables, he taught with authority. And the word is exousia, and, and what it means is out of substance. And what it really means is that Jesus always taught something that was meaningful, something that was important, something that was the word of God. In fact, that he never spoke things that were wrong, that he didn't misspeak anything, he didn't exaggerate anything, he didn't uh, say anything that was false, he didn't, he didn't say anything that was superficial. Everything that Jesus said was the word of God. Okay, that, that was the, the mode and the method of everything that he taught was it is the word of God. It was exactly what God wanted him to say and it was exactly what needed to be said, and it was the right thing, and it was powerful, and it had substance, and it had meaning, and it was necessary. So he is the embodiment of wisdom. And scripture goes into great detail of the reality that Jesus was the embodiment of wisdom. John, this is what really John is talking about in, in John chapter 1, when he says, the word became flesh. What he's talking about is logos, and Logos is the wisdom of God, it's the knowledge of God, it's the creative word of God, it's everything God intends, everything that God speaks creatively, everything that he speaks legally, everything that he, he intends for people in his design. Jesus embodied that in his very nature. He's wisdom made flesh, the wisdom of God in, in human form. So he fulfills the law, he fulfills the Messiah prophecies, he fulfills the, the wisdom. And then there's a fourth one. Um, that uh, is really important, which is that he fulfills the sacrificial law. So he fulfills all the law, but he fulfills the sacrificial part of that, which is so significant that in Exodus, the people were commanded to uh, uh, slaughter a Passover lamb. And so they drain the blood, and they put that blood on their doorpost. And what would happen here is that the, the angel of death would pass over their home uh, because what God was going to do, he was going to punish the firstborn uh, son in every home unless they were covered by the blood. Jesus dies on the cross as the Passover lamb. His blood on that cross uh, signifies and resembles and, and symbolizes the blood on the doorpost. And, I mean, just there's so many things going on here. Jesus is the firstborn son who dies. And he's the firstborn son who is spared because three days later he's risen from the dead. And he also signifies the, the sacrifice that Abraham was called to give uh, when he brought his son Isaac to Mount Moriah. Very same mountain that Abraham went to is where Jesus died. Abraham is told, sacrifice your son. And he is about to plunge the dagger into his son when God says, stop. Okay, and, and what happens is he turns and there's a ram in the thicket that God says, this is your sacrifice. And Abraham says, on this mountain, God will provide. Jesus is both Isaac, who was the one who is the firstborn son or the son under promise who is supposed to be sacrificed, and he is the ram who is in the thicket that was actually sacrificed. I mean, he, do you get the, the, the weight of all the things that Jesus fulfills in all of these things. And here's the, the mind-blowing part of this, okay? If, if it's not already kind of overwhelming, that when Jesus died on the cross and 
uh, that sacrifice was finally made once and for all. The, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Remember that? There's an earthquake and all. And what happens, though, is that on a cosmic level, okay, universal, spiritual level throughout the whole universe, what happened was when God fulfilled that requirement of this, the blood being poured out, he says that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Finally, the perfect blood has been shed. From that event, what happened was uh, AD 70, okay, just a few years later, the temple... Very few religions have any kind of animal sacrifice involved with it. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think it's a coincidence. I think God says it's done. When Jesus says it's finished, it really was finished. So he fulfills all these aspects of the law, and you say, okay, that's great. I believe that. Anybody still need more convincing? Okay. I didn't see any hands. Um, so what does that mean? What does it mean for us? He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he accomplished all of that. So is he teaching us then we don't have any responsibility to the law? Or is he saying that uh, we're no longer burdened by the law. We don't get our righteousness from the law. We get our righteousness from Jesus. Therefore, whoever relaxes or breaks one of the least of these commandments. Here's what is so troubling in Christianity, and I've already mentioned this, is that so many people who call themselves Christians um, are teaching, actively teaching, that you can sin and do whatever you want and break any and all of the rules that God established in his word, and all you got to do is just say, please, God, forgive me, and you can keep going and doing that over and over and over and over again, as if this is really what God intended when he brought Jesus to die on the cross, was to give you permission to live however you want. And what he says here is that when you teach people to sin like that, then um, you are called least in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're finally getting to the point. The Pharisees were a group of people in Jesus' day that had determined to live perfectly under the law perfectly, to do everything exactly as they were supposed to do it without fail in every detail. And Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed their righteousness. How is that possible? Okay, according to 
Old Spice, you give 110%. (laughs) Thank you for the one (laughs) chuckle. Okay, here's here's, uh, a reality check. How many of you have heard, you know, oh, give 110%, give 200%, just like you, do you know, anybody realize that's not possible? Like we talk about this all the time, oh, give 110%. You cannot give 110%. All you can give is 100%. That's the maximum you can give, okay? Here's here's my example, okay? I have cash (laughs) for the first time in a long time, Um, a whopping $22. $22. Can I give you $24? This is 100% of what I have. I mean, on me. <laughs> I can't give you $24 because if I give you $24, I got to get $2 from somebody else. 100%. This is it. And so when, if Jesus says that your righteousness Righteousness needs to exceed perfection, then how can you possibly do that? You can't give more than 100%. This is what the Pharisees were actively seeking to do, to be perfect, 100%, without fail. And so here's how this works, okay? He's not saying you got to try harder than them because nobody was trying harder than the Pharisees, okay? Just repeat that to yourself. Nobody was trying harder than the Pharisees. You got that? So what does he mean? Skip over to Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, you just read the whole uh, chapter, 23. It's a scathing judgment on the Pharisees. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin. Okay, the law does not require you to do that. But in order to make sure that you're perfect, this is what they were doing. They're tithing every little... In their little herb garden that was on their windowsill, they were taking 10% of it and making sure that they gave it to God. God didn't even require that. They were making sure they were perfect. Okay, you got the picture? You tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say don't tithe. He says make sure that you understand You have the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. And his point is this, that the law was good. It was intended to bless. What happened with the Jewish people is that they were so overwhelmed and burdened by the legalism of all the things that they thought that they were required to do, that they had missed what God's heart was in him giving the law. What does Jesus say? The people were asking him, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what he says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says something else. Do you remember the next part? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And here's what he's, I'm going to put these two things together. His fulfillment of the law, prophets, uh, wisdom, sacrifices, and his teaching about the spirit of the law here, that 
all the law and the prophets hang on loving God, loving your neighbor, are really a connection point between what it means uh, for Jesus to have unburdened the Jewish people from the requirements of the law and unburdened the uh, Gentile people, that's you and me, from the burden of sin. Is that the heart of God is that he loves you. We sing that all the time. He loves you. He loves you so much that he's willing to die for you. That's not new information, right? We know that. He's willing to die for me. And not only that, but he intends good things for us that he has communicated through his word that are a blessing to us. That if we understand the spirit of the law, the spirit of the law is to have a connection with God in such a way that we have fellowship with him, fellowship with each other, and that when, when I'm coming into a right relationship with God, I'm, I'm no longer asking, what does God require? I don't have to ask that anymore because Jesus fulfilled the requirements. Now when I come to God, I ask the right question, which is what does God desire? What does he want? What do you want from me, God? What do you want for me? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to relate to you and to other people? The only question that we really need to be asking on a consistent daily basis is, God, what do you desire? If you, instead of asking that or asking God, what do you require, then you're going to find yourself burdened by a load of laws and commandments and requirements that you can never fulfill. And God says, I, I did all that for you so you could begin to come to me with this question. What do you want, God? What's your will? What do you desire for me? And when he begins to speak to your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, then he's going to take his word and he's going to remind you of his blessings that the Sabbath was made for man. All that means is that God intended to give you rest, to allow you to have a connection with him and with other people, to not be distracted by all the things of the world so that you can actually breathe, not to be overwhelmed with some law or some legal requirement that now I have another thing stressing me out. And so we have an opportunity, okay, in this moment to really change the direction where our lives are going. And this is all I'm going to leave you with. When you are beginning that step of, of faith or this beginning a, a walk with the Lord and you're asking the questions, what am I supposed to do? What does God require? Just pause and remove that word from your vocabulary and just replace it with what does God desire? And I'm telling you that when you start asking that question, things just begin to totally clear up. Now I, I get to the heart of who God is and what he wants. It, it'll change your life if you begin to change your language. Amen? Father, we love you. Lord, we want to know what you desire, God. We thank you that you've given us teaching, instruction, wisdom, evidence, um, 
example over and over and over again. Help us, Lord, to see that, to understand it, to apply it. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us uh, the ability to not only interpret, but to apply that to our lives. But God, we thank you that you, um, you're a God who cares, that you desire to draw us into a relationship, not just into another set of rules. And it is, it's frustrating when we think of Christianity as rules, Lord. I, I, I hear people say that that's, that's what they think Christianity is, just our own set of rules. And God, I know that that has to hurt your own heart when you accomplished everything on our behalf just to invite us into a, a relationship with yourself. So, Lord, we, uh, we do that now. Put aside everything. Uh, whether it's a uh, legal requirement or a sin that's entangling us, Lord, we just set them aside right now and we come to you openly, honestly, and willingly, Lord, asking for you to reveal not only yourself, but your will. And God, we'll just follow you. We thank you that we can in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, decided this morning that... Um, based on something that I just said a minute ago about the confession booth and the altar, <laughs> that we, we tend to, in some ways, make the altar almost like another religious um, legalism. Like, you need to come to the altar to make yourself right with the Lord. And, and you know what? Just for the sake of this morning, uh, I'm going to ask that you don't come to the altar. That whatever the Lord's speaking to your heart, that you let him speak directly to you right, right where you're at, and you take it with you when you go, and you let him keep speaking to you. Amen? But let's right now just stand and worship and let the Lord do what he wants to do. <laughs>